You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. Good to be back together today. I missed last week. I've been down sick. Uh, that's why I'm uh, doing my kind of like trendy TED talk in a stool today uh, because uh, I'm not feeling the greatest, but I'm, I feel good enough to be up here with you. I didn't want to be gone two weeks in a row. Uh, aren't you thankful for Hunter Levine preaching last week? Did an awesome job. We have such a great team. I'm so thankful for that. Uh, John 18 is where we're going to be today. Uh, the context is that Jesus just got handed over to Pilate to be tried, to be crucified, handed over to die, handed over to death, uh, to die for the sins of the world. Little did Pilate know that was what was going to happen. But the context is he's been handed over as an innocent man to be tried and sentenced to death by Pilate. And here's the conversation. John 18, starting verse 33. Then Pilate went back to the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking us on your own or have others told you about me? Is this your question? Like, do you really want to know this? Or is this what everyone else is saying? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation, the chief priest, handed you over to me. What have you done? And the answer is he's done nothing, actually, but in their jealousy, in their rage, uh, in their thinking he's blaspheming by claiming he's God, they've handed him over. Here's what Jesus said, and this is our point this morning. This is what we're going to focus on. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Words in your mind, my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is not of this world. I want you to play that in your mind over and over again the rest of the day, those words from Jesus. You are a king then, Pilate asked, I guess like a king of some other place, some other area. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into this world for this. Why? To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, here's how you know, listens to my voice. Then Pilate asks a question that's been asked ever since over and over again. What is truth? What is truth? Those who are with me, those who know the truth, they testify. When they, they hear my voice, they testify to it. They agree with it. They align with me, Jesus says. And Pilate goes, well, what exactly is truth? And the reality is, truth was standing right in front of him. So context matters when we read the Bible. And there's been hints of this happening throughout John. In John 16, Jesus says this, I have told you these things, all the lessons he's taught them, so you may have peace. We really need peace right now, don't we, in our world? That's not new. You will have suffering in this world. Doesn't say there's going to be an absence of it. He guarantees it to them and tells them they're going to have peace. He says, be courageous. I have conquered the world. In John 17, I've given them your word, Jesus is praying here. The world, the world that his kingdom is not of, hated them. Why? Because they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, make them holy, make them more like Christ by the truth. That's how it happens. And then declares the question Pilate asked. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, the world that's not mine, that's not of me, I've also sent them into the world. 
So there's this kind of teasing and understanding and explanation of this idea of being of a kingdom that's not of this world. See, Israel's messianic hopes focused on the coming of a military conqueror who would basically rescue them from their geopolitical enemies. So when he was being tried by Pilate, they're going, why haven't your people come to rescue you? Well, he goes, well, they're not of this world. This is why they sought to make Jesus the king early on. They tried to force him in his king in John chapter 6. But Jesus over and over again redirects their understandings by declaring to them, my kingdom is not of this world. See, Jesus transforms our understanding of kingdom and of a king because he's showing that it is holistic in its nature, that it's redemptive in its mission, and it's cosmic in its scope. It's not defined by a White House on Pennsylvania Avenue or a monarchy or a building or a term or an election. It's holistic. It's redemptive. It's not about might or power. It's about redemption, and it's cosmic. It's not defined by geographical boundaries like the kingdoms of this world. So as believers, that is the context by which we view things, by which we see this world. John Calvin said, it is the task of the church to make the visible kingdom, the invisible kingdom visible. That that's our job now, to take this invisible kingdom that's not of this world, that's not defined by boundaries or white houses or monarchies or castles or elections, and to make this invisible kingdom visible through the church. Well, it sounds good, but how do you do that? We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ. And that happens in our jobs, our families, our schools, our calendars, our checkbooks, because God in Christ is king over every single one of those spheres of life. That's why I said it's holistic in nature. It's cosmic in nature. It's a reign that's not confined by a certain place. It's a reign that is over all. And now our job as believers is to carry out the reign of Christ into this world, but it looks different than any way the world regularly views the idea of reigning. See, John Piper says this, the only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven, subjects of the king. Subjects of the king. Do you see yourself that way? Do I see myself as that way first, as subject of a king, as under the authority of a king named Jesus? So this theme runs from creation all the way through to the new heaven and the new earth, and God will be seen as all in all, not some kind of constitutional monarch, but the reigning king who reigns from the cross, reigns in resurrection glory, reigns even now, right this moment, he's ascended to heaven, he's a mediator in that role, and he will ultimately reign for the new heavens and the new earth. That's why he tells the disciples, I've told you these things about who I am, about what I'm doing, so you may have peace, as the kingdoms of this world are always in conflict. He says, you're gonna have suffering in this world, but you can have peace and be courageous, because I've conquered it. But how has he conquered it? With a sword, with a fight, with a debate, with a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Because his kingdom came to redeem a people for himself and create a new set of people, kingdom people called the church, made up of Christians. So what I want to look at are how these two ideas, there's really two things that are kind of now being made known of us finally understanding the reality of living in a kingdom that's not of this world. A kingdom that's not of this world. And those two things are what I'm going to call power and respectability. 
two things that Christians have continued to lose in our culture that shouldn't surprise us. We could say a marker that we're actually not of this world is the understanding of power and respectability being lost by us in the public square. What do I mean by power? Uh, this is often for an older generation of Americans, specifically Christians. I uh, think of the old kind of take back America idea. Uh, maybe the thought is the mission of the church is to win America back for God, uh, to kind of take over the country, uh, to influence politically more than anything, uh, maybe take back America morally. Uh, this is like a USA is a Christian nation kind of idea. Uh, Christian influence is really important, uh, that politics is the measure of whether or not we're being effective or not in this world. And as we look around, we're seeing that reality basically go away that Christians don't really have much power anymore. That look at Washington DC, what's happening, look at our world, and this is not new by a new election, this has been true for some time now, that Christians as a whole do not have that influence that many people want to gain back again. But if Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, the question is, were we ever really supposed to have it in the first place? And if we were having power, could it be perhaps we were doing it the wrong way? The mission of the church is not defined by any kind of political wins. Yes, we want Christians working in politics and voting and being engaged, but there's categories that aren't going to make sense to us. This world brings us because we're in a kingdom that's not of this world. So we've seen a loss of power happen, and you see Christians are trying to grab for it again. They're freaking out, and they're sounding the alarm when we actually live in a kingdom that's not of this world where the way of the Christian life is actually one defined by the world is the way of a loser, not the way of a winner. Because the wins that we look forward to and the wins that we anticipate are victory in Christ, the good news of the gospel, him making a people for himself, setting them apart to do his mission. So this whole idea of power slipping away for Christians in the culture really shouldn't be news to any of us. We have a savior who said, my kingdom is not of this world. So that shouldn't be shocking to any of us. It doesn't mean we don't care about issues. What it means is power is not what we're looking for. Ultimate influence is not what we're looking for. Winning is not what we're ultimately looking for because here's Jesus before Pilate going, if my people were of this world, they'd overthrow you right now. They'd riot right now. But for the Christian, that's not our posture because the win for us is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. It's an invisible kingdom. That's not always gonna make sense in this world. It's not gonna have instant results for us in the day to day, and that's hard for us. We wanna see results, we wanna see, and that's how our world works, right? We wanna see action, we wanna see things take place, but the invisible kingdom continues to advance by things as radical as churches gathering on Sunday morning. You praying today, you reading your Bible, you sharing the gospel, you being that Christian friend, you comforting someone who is hurting, you speaking to injustices. All of these things are how the invisible kingdom gets made visible. Power being lost really is an indicator that Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, my kingdom's not of this world. The second thing is respectability. Respectability. Now this has often become a thing of concern for kind of the young and elite crowd of Christians uh, they're not tempted to fight the Christian American culture war necessarily, but rather they are tempted instead, rather than fighting, they're tempted to slide into the crowd and make compromises. So they really want is to be acclaimed by the secular world. They don't want to be seen as kind of those sort of Christians. 
They don't want to be viewed as being out of touch. They want to show people maybe they're a cooler version, a more understanding version. But it's important to hear from David Wells here. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. There's a temptation because all the messaging coming at us to try to really accommodate and make sin seem normal and living for Christ seem strange. Kevin DeYoung wrote this. Here's the reality facing every Christian in the West. The money, the power, and prestige of mainstream media, big-time sports, big business, big tech, and almost all the institutions of education and entertainment are invested in making sin look normal. Celebrating the sexual revolution. Celebrating your right to choose your own self-autonomy and do whatever it is you want to do as long as it makes you happy. There's a temptation to cave and to give in and to yield, wanting to crave this sort of respectability. My friend tells a story when he was in college. Uh, he was at Southern Miss University, so Mississippi, very Bible Belt. And a friend of his, and who was his roommate in his dorm, was not a believer. He'd invite him to church regularly. Man, it's not my thing. No thanks. You know, I respect that you do that, kind of, but it's not really my thing. And he just invited him all the time. And you college students know what it's like to, you know, have an unbelieving roommate or a friend. You're just trying and trying and trying. And they're just like, no thank you. Not my thing. I'm going to do my thing. Leave the college experience. All that jazz. Well, then years later, he called my friend, his old roommate. They kept in loose touch. But he called him. And he goes, hey, man, I need you to recommend a good church for me down here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And he was like, that's amazing. Holy cow, man, I've prayed for you, and this is so great. Like, that you're, you're, are you a believer now looking for a church? He's like, oh, no, 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 man. I'm running for office. And you can't run for office in Mississippi and not be a member of a well-known Baptist church. That was true then. That is not true anymore. If anything, it will hurt you to be associated with a Bible-believing and Bible-preaching church. There's actually probably going to come a time where some of you are questioned by your employer about your faith, about your beliefs, not because they're interested and want to know more about you, because they want to make sure that you're not on the wrong side of history. They want to make sure you're not one of those people who believe these sort of kind of things. So what do we do? I think the only hope is the one the scriptures give us. We look somewhere else. We look not for hope in this world, but to the one whose kingdom is not of this world. See, Jesus went to the cross to prepare a place for us, an everlasting city, as the Bible calls it, whose architect and builder is actually God himself. My kingdom is not of this world, Pilate. You just don't understand. It's not from here. You want to put categories on it. You want to ask, like, what nation, what throne, what term, what policies. And what I'm telling you is it's completely otherworldly altogether. See, Jesus was not born to keep secret the truth of who God is. He was born and came into the world to bear witness to the truth, the unchanging, absolute truth of God. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he only thought in that mindset of like a governorship. When Jesus actually was the king of the Jews, but a spiritual king who would reign and rule forever and ever. And Pilate's like, so what is truth? 
what actually is truth? See, the world is really busy right now promoting its catechism. Indoctrination, indoctrination, indoctrination. Agenda, agenda, agenda. And they call it education. They call it enlightenment. And the question is whether or not we're going to get busy promoting ours. And what is our agenda? Is it power? I think that has been true of Christians before. Is our goal respectability? Being admired, giving a thumbs up, a nod, oh, you're the kind of Christian I like because... And it's really because you simply treat someone well, which I hope we all do in the name of loving our neighbor. It's often because they don't know what you believe. There's no distinction. And just wait. As soon as they find out what you claim to believe, all of a sudden it's not going to be that respectable anymore. Like, is that what we're about? No, we're about our agenda is Jesus, the invisible kingdom being made visible, being made known, being declared. It means we live distinctly. We live for a different sexual ethic. We do view marriage as between a man and a woman as God's design. We do believe our neighbor is to be loved. We do care about injustices in the world. We do believe the greatest problem in this world before it's anything else is spiritual. Are there other physical problems? Of course there are. We believe first and foremost that spiritually we have the biggest problem. And the only hope for that is Jesus who came to make things new. So I think that my, my kind of takeaway for this whole idea of my kingdom's not of this world and then how do we make an impact if it's not about power and it's not about respectability, I think it's important that we know that our first call, I really believe this, is to be a faithful to Christ man or woman who helps others be good and faithful to Christ. I think that's more important than any idea of trying to revolutionize the world. It's not as sexy, it's not as branded, it doesn't work as well on Instagram, but your job is not to change the world. My job is not to change the world. Our job is to be faithful and good when it comes to following Christ and helping others do the same. And guess what? That in itself trickles to another person, to another person, and another person, and that's what changes the world. And how do we do that? A really deep word, I think I made this word up, I'm not sure. Everydayness. You English majors can tell me later if that's a word or not, but everydayness. That's how the invisible kingdom is made visible. Through the everydayness of your life through not bowing down to the machine, to not wanting to grip for more power and the lust of that, to not wanting to be respected by a lost world so deeply and admired that you compromise on core Christian convictions. Everydayness, being faithful exactly where God has you. Not feeling the pressure to wake up every day and change the world, but to wake up every day and be faithful in the everydayness of your life. Romans 12, I think, gives us a glimpse of this. Here's what Paul says. This is based on all the things he just wrote. We're actually going to be back in Bible in a year next week. We'll be in Romans. So here's a little taste of that. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, talking to Christians here, in view of the mercies of God, because of the gospel, because of the Jesus died for us, because God loves us, because he died a death that we deserve, because of the cross and the resurrection, because we're forgiven by Christ, I now urge you, I'm going to make a plea to you and now how to live in the everydayness to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, he says this is your true worship. Now first century Christians, hearing the word sacrifice would sound really strange if it's tied to me as a person. Because sacrifice to them meant an animal that was gonna be killed and have its blood shed and presented to a priest. So they're going, wait a second here. I just wanna make sure you said this right, Paul. Did you say that we're to present our bodies as sacrifices? It's kind of a little, just like a little morbid here, like are Christians getting, getting a little freaky? But like what's going on here? And here's what Paul's telling them. You know in the past, in the old system, how you would take your sacrifice, your goat, your sheep, your pigeon, to the priest, and he would inspect it, then he would go and make the sacrifice on your behalf, and you'd go away and come back a year later to go through the routine all over again to have your sins covered? Oh yeah, that's what we do, yeah, yeah. Here's what I'm telling you now. Your sins have already been forgiven forever by Jesus. You don't have to go once a year to the priest anymore. You don't have to make sure you're a pleasing sacrifice because Jesus has already been that for you. So here's how it works now. You know how you'd take the, the animal and they'd, they'd kill it, sacrifice it, and then they'd clean it up and remove it and it'd be off the table? Now I want you to figuratively take yourself and place yourself on the altar and not walk away, but leave yourself figuratively there. And to say, Jesus, I'm yours. That I'm just not the one making the sacrifice, I'm also the sacrifice itself. Like, here's my life, my self-autonomy, my desire for power, my desire for respectability. I'm gonna find all of those things in the one whose kingdom is not of this world. Then he adds this immediately, don't be conformed to this age. My kingdom's not of this world. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's how you're gonna be able to discern, he says, what's good, what's pleasing, and the perfect will of God. By how? By not being conformed to this world. By not giving in to the pull and the lure of this world. By not having to look over your shoulder and make sure every 10 seconds that you're viewed as woke enough or not woke enough or somewhere in between or whatever it might be. No, I'm gonna living sacrifice. What God thinks about me is what's going to matter the most. So my living sacrifice is, I don't make a sacrifice and go home. I figuratively put myself on the altar and leave myself there. Jesus, here's my life. This is my act of worship. And because of that, I'm not gonna be conformed to this age, but transformed by the renewing of my mind. So what does this look like for us, this whole idea of not being conformed to this world? I think it's three things. And I think Jesus leads out for us on this and the fact that he came to this world, there was the incarnation, he entered into the world, was also condemned and killed by this world. Both things happening at once. I think it's three things. Adaption, or three, I should say categories. Adaption and confrontation. Earlier in the exile and the Old Testament, the writers told the Jewish people to build homes, to plant gardens, take up residency where you live, adapt to the area, like actually be someone who lives there, <coughs> and also confrontation. At the same time, we're speaking against the idols of this world. I live faithfully, I invest where I am, but I also confront the idols of this world. The second thing is participation and separation. I'm fully invested in this world. 
I'm here, but I'm also separate from the things that are unpleasing to God. That holiness is not separation from sinners, because Jesus never did that. We'd be in big trouble if that was true because the gospel would never come to us. Holiness is separation from sin. Not from sinners, but from sin. So I participate in this world, but I'm also separate from this world. And then lastly, in the world, but not of the world. Live here, but don't belong here, because my kingdom is not of this world. I adapt, and I confront. I participate, we're not hiding out, we're not removing ourselves from this world, but I'm also separate from it. And I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. And when we grasp those things, I want to live here, be faithful here, not hide. Jesus prayed, don't take them out of the world, protect them while they're in it. I want to adapt. I want to be relatable. But at the same time, I'm not going to allow people to think that I'm okay with the idol worship going on all around me. I want to participate. I want to live a life in everydayness in Tallahassee. But I also want to be separate from sin. And I want to be in the world. Jesus wants me in the world, but I'm not going to be of the world. Why? Because my kingdom I'm a part of doesn't belong to this world. It's invisible. And God wants to make it visible. And by making our aim, our agenda, all the name of Jesus and the work he's done on our behalf. And here's Pilate going, okay, trying to figure this out here. What, well, what is truth? And the reality was that truth was standing right in front of him and was about to be condemned to go and die a death for people that deserve to die for sins themselves, that he would take on that death in our place to forgive us, to reconcile with us to God, and now to make us people who are living sacrifices, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that Jesus is not of this world and that he saved us from the gods of this world, and at the same time, wants us to stay in this world but be separate from it. But we need your help for that. On our own, we are unable to live a faithful life in this world. So we ask that daily you will be the one that convicts us of sin, that fills us with the spirit, and allows us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be renewed by our minds daily. Or help us to adapt, help us to be present, Help us to participate, and all along the while, help us to be faithful in the fact that our allegiance is to the King, who's not of this world, but one day will return and make all things new and rule this world forever and ever and ever. We're thankful for Jesus, his love for us. We now sing together as a church the good news of who you are and the great mercy of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.